This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Henry Dunphy. Now in the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which is now known rightly as Putin's war, it's been a bad two weeks for Russia. Last week they lost a lot of territory which the Ukrainians regained. It was quite dramatic, and it has caused Vladimir Putin problems at at home and credibility problems. His response has been to call a referendum, which was held this weekend in four provinces, I suppose you could call them, where the Russians have a majority of people living there, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Donetsk, and Luhansk. They are now going to be officially part of Russia because of this rigged referendum. It is, well, it would be funny if it wasn't so dangerous and so tragic because it means, of course, according to the Russians' conditions, if any part of Russia is attacked, threatened, then they are entitled to retaliate with any means at their disposal. And the former president of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, who is now the deputy chairman of its security council, said last week, all Russian weapons, including strategic nuclear weapons and weapons based on new principles, can be used to protect Russia. And of course, this is a rigged referendum and these are deadly threats at the United Nations Security Council last week, Michal Martin, made a very strong speech, as did many others, including Anthony Blinken, the American Secretary of State. So Russia is on the back foot on the battlefield. We're joined now to discuss the significance of this by Tom Conan. Tom is a senator, of course, for Dublin City University, otherwise known as Trinity College. He was an officer commanding Irish troops under the United Nations in South Lebanon in the 90s and the mid-90s, and he witnessed the operation known as Grapes of Wrath, in which villagers were massacred in a village called Cana in April 1996. And Tom has been guiding us through the military aspect of this battle continuing. Tom, the 
use of nuclear weapons, I think, is something that has cast a shadow in everyone's mind. And Putin's ploy, if you like, of getting this referendum organized and declaring what are parts of Ukraine, Kherson, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, to be now part of Russia. What's that a sign of? Is he telling us, is he making a fool of himself, as you could regard it from one perspective, or is he, do you think, as he said last week, not bluffing? I think the comments are very sinister. And um, there's a great quote attributed to Vladimir Putin. Apparently, when he was about 12 or 13, he went into an outhouse and uh, he he came across a rat and the rat was cornered. Mm. And he said that it was extraordinary revelation for him as a young man, a, a teenager to see. And he says, a, a creature so small become so uh, aggressive in an instant because it was cornered. And... Um, so I think that's the situation that he finds himself in. Uh, he has run out of conventional military operations in Ukraine for the time being. His forces have been held now uh, to a stalemate. And in the recent offensive counter Ukrainian counter against offensive in Kharkiv, they've actually been pushed back to the Russian border. So his attempt to decapitate the regime has failed and his attempt to consolidate and expand his complete occupation of Donbass has failed. So he has now ordered this partial mobilization. And to put that in context, to, to get 300,000 reservists, uh, you know, to get them together, to get them into uniform, get them equipped to have their range practices fired, to get the weapons zeroed to them, you know, the small arms, before you even get to the stage where you're getting them back into their armored vehicles and the weapon systems there and the, and doing communications drills and you know units that fight together must train together you can't just get a scratch group of people together and put them into the field now we've heard that the russians have been doing that with conscripts and and mercenaries with very little training but the the, the sheer logistics of gathering together 300,000 people many of whom will not have served together getting them into those units, getting them into their vehicles and, and back up to speed on, on the, the, the communication systems, the weapon systems and so on, to even get them to, to go in the order of march that they're expected to go, to maneuver alongside one another, to coordinate with air defense, artillery and all of the other logistics supports. It's going to take months to get those troops up to the border with Ukraine and to their kind of what they call form-up areas, and get them into the forward edge of the battle area to confront the Ukrainians. It, I would say it'll be winter before those troops are there in a meaningful way. Their motivation to fight, I, I wonder, because with the uh, casualties now, during the week, the Russian defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, for the first time in a long time, actually gave uh, a figure for Russian deaths, which was just short of 6,000. At the same time, in August, uh, sources in the United States from the State Department were saying that their Russian deaths were at about 70,000. So if you yes. take a halfway point between those two figures, you're probably getting on to where it is. So 
30,000 killed, which is an extraordinary number, three times the number that were killed in Afghanistan in a 10-year conflict. And many multiples of that very seriously injured with what we call polytrauma, secondary to, you know, drone strikes, uh, high explosives. So that would bring the figure of casualties to over 100,000 out of an original invasion force of 180,000. So if you're a Russian going to uh, Ukraine, you know that you have a less than, sorry, a greater than one in two chance of being either killed or very seriously injured, you know, maimed for life, crippled, limb separation, you know, it's just appalling injuries. So what level of motivation they such a force would have to fight is is an unknown quantity. But based on their Russian performance in the field thus far, it, it doesn't bode well for them. So I think that even if they get those 300,000 troops into Ukraine by winter time, I don't think it's going to be a game changer, which is why I would be very concerned about um, this option, you know, stated that by Medvedev, that they might use strategic nuclear weapons or, and it's a very interesting formula of words you quoted there, uh, Eamon, that he said they would use new weapons to a new purpose. And I can explain what that is. Yes. I mean, the, we don't know what that is, but you will know. I understand they have a weapon that is far-reaching. It's a, a weapon the Americans possess, but they won't yet give it to the Ukrainians. Yeah, so... Basically, what what Medvedev is talking about is strategic nuclear weapons are, these are the massive intercontinental ballistic missiles, Eamon, that we would remember from the the 1970s when we were getting leaflets from the government telling us that in the event of a nuclear strike, (laughs) we we should go to the press under the stairs and wait for their instructions. But, you know, these are weapons of 800 kilotons that would destroy a city the size of New York or London in like literally in a camera flash, gone. Yes. And to put an 800 kiloton weapon into context, the, the atomic bomb dropped at Hiroshima was 15.15 kilotons, and that yes. killed 146,000 people in one attack. So can you imagine what an 800 kiloton weapon would do, you know, 53 times stronger than that? It would kill millions. And then you'd have the, the contamination very serious radioactive contamination for a long period of time. So the Russians have about 4,000 of those weapons, these strategic weapons, but they've also developed approximately 2,000 small warheads. And these are the ones that I would be very, very worried about. These are called so-called tactical nuclear weapons. And the Russians have put a lot of R&D and investment into this arsenal And some of them are as small as one kiloton. So they'd be a fraction of the size of the weapon dropped on Hiroshima. So a one kiloton tactical nuclear weapon would destroy a town about the size of Athlone or Nina in County Tipperary or, you know, you know, it's that kind of weapon. If you deployed such a weapon uh, at the point of impact you would have an instantly a, a one-mile radius zone of destruction where you'd have massive heat uh, and radiation and a shockwave uh, within, w- in the instant of detonation. And within 50 seconds, that um, kill zone would have stretched out to 12, a 12-mile 12 radius. 
So that's the kind of destruction you're talking about. And I think that the, the Russians might consider using such a weapon against a Ukrainian target, like, for example, the city of Kramatorsk or Slavyansk, which are very important uh, hubs, for, uh, military hubs for the Ukrainian military supporting their counteroffensives in the east and the south of the country. Now, the reason why Medvedev used the, the words, you know, new weapons and new purposes is that in the last 20 years, since Putin came to power, they have kind of reformed their military and, and the Russian military doctrine. So they've moved away from the old Cold War concept of operations where you had huge fixed formations facing west, ready to meet, you know, the armoured advance of the British Army of the Rhine and the American forces across the, the North German plain and across the Northern European plain through Poland into Germany, into Russia. They've, they've moved away from that concept to a more nimble concept and within that, they have incorporated into their conventional tactical doctrine the use of these tactical weapons. And the final thing I say about it is they also have a, a principle called first use, where yes. they would reserve the right if Russian territory, Russian soil is threatened, that they reserve the right to use one of these tactical nuclear weapons as a in a preemptive strike. And so that's, that's where the yeah. weekend referenda that took place comes in. So this is now Putin putting, it's the last roll of the dice for Putin. His conventional military operations have failed. He's now mobilized 300,000 troops. He has, by pseudo-legal means, uh, he will hope to declare parts of Donbass where his troops are in Luhansk and Donetsk and down into the, the corridor down to the Crimea. He will, by these referenda, he'll be able to, you know, stand in, in, in the Kremlin and say that this is now Russian soil. It's Russia proper. It's the Rodina. It's the motherland. Yes. And that the Ukrainians and what they're increasingly referring to as the collective West, which is a whole of us, us. I mean, yes. he's threatening Ukraine. He's threatening Kiev, but he's also threatening London, Paris, Dublin, New York. Washington, everyone. One of his generals suggested that the ideal time to fire a nuclear weapon would have been at London to Westminster where the Queen's funeral was taking place and where there were over 100 heads of state last week. But I want to ask you about what a problem the use of a tactical nuclear weapon would pose for NATO and for the United States, which, of course, is the, the lead force. NATO would then have a question to answer. What considerations would they take into account, Tom? Well, if you look at it from NATO's perspective, um, there, and there is a lot of disinformation and misinformation uh, out there at the moment. I, I've been listening to a lot of talking heads uh, in, in the media at the moment who, who say that, you know, if the Russians tried to deploy a nuclear weapon, if they tried to fire one, that that the West has anti-missile missile systems that could intercept them, like, you know, the Israeli Iron Dome uh, system. There are other systems like called Flycatcher and other, they have other nicknames and, you know, military terms for them. But that actually is not the case because if the Russians use a small one kiloton device, that can be fired 
from a conventional artillery piece. So the Russians have in Ukraine, they have these Malk self-propelled guns. They're not unlike the 155mm howitzers that the US military have been supplying uh, along with the the French and the Ukrainian forces. So it would be impossible for, or almost impossible for the West to track the movement of such a small uh, device and to know which, you know, you and it's time of flight from being fired from a, a an artillery piece. It's time of flight to the target would be, you know, less than a minute. It would be impossible for the for for NATO or the Ukrainians to intercept and prevent such a, a strike. The so so that's from the West's perspective. They know they can't stop. Um, if if it were to happen in hypothetically or theoretically, the West cannot stop um, the Russians from firing a, a small one kiloton device. And the West also knows, based on you know what happened at Chernobyl, that the the firing of such a device would create, obviously it would kill up to 10, 15,000 uh, Ukrainian soldiers, men, women and children would be killed in an instant. But then you would also have a zone of contamination, yeah. you know, very heavy nuclear contamination that would be similar in size, possibly a little larger than the one that, that we have in, in Chernobyl. So the West will will think about this and say, is that an acceptable level of risk and contamination for the Russians? That's an interesting question because I think they, Putin referred to the direction that the wind blows. Again, another veiled threat to contaminate yes. all of Europe with the radioactive fallout from, from such an attack. Um, if you look at it from, from the Russian perspective, um, the Russian people and the Russian military fear and nuclear exchange just as much as as you or I. Yes. Um, but Vladimir Putin himself doesn't fear uh, a nuclear strike. He because this is a man with no way out. And if you recall the that that quote that's attributed to him about the rat in the corner, the rat, yeah. How, how suddenly such a small creature became so aggressive and and had such power. And I think that's that's the space that he's in at the moment. And and it's it's a very dangerous moment. Yes, and people have talked this week about an off-ramp offering him a way out, but for two reasons, he doesn't appear likely to avail of any way out. One of them is that the terms in which he's cast this conflict, that NATO and Ukraine, Ukraine is not a country, they are Nazis, NATO is attacking Russia, He's cast this in such ludicrous terms to the Russian people that it would be very difficult for him now to back away. At the same time, on Friday and Thursday, when people were protesting on the streets, the Russian police were railing them in, throwing them in vans and serving them with draft papers. You couldn't get a flight. You can't get a flight out of Russia now until mid-October, because so many people left last week. All the planes out of Russia were full of young men who don't want to be caught up in this war. And the very fact that he upped the stakes by mobilizing or attempting to 300,000 reservists has alerted people in a way they don't appear to have been alerted or alarmed before. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The question, Tom, that most of us would be asking ourselves would be, would it be incumbent on NATO to respond Perhaps, I mean, NATO's forces are so much larger than anything Russia can present that NATO, would they have to engage on the level that Putin had, you know, proposed, i.e., you've used a tactical nuclear weapon, you've caused the kind of carnage that you've very vividly described. What is NATO to do if you're dealing with somebody like Putin? Oh, there's no doubt if, if Russia fires a tactical nuclear weapon at a target in Ukraine, that's it. It's it's game over. The, there will be an immediate and massive retaliation from NATO. Because, and you, you already saw this week at the UN Security Council and the UN headquarters in New York, China has made its views very clear um, after their meeting with uh, yes. with uh, Putin earlier in Uzbekistan, that they will not, they do not, will not countenance the use of, of a nuclear weapon. But there would be an immediate and massive retaliation from NATO. Now, my understanding is that such a the initial retaliation would be a conventional one that would target. You know, there would be massive missile and airstrikes and high altitude bombing attacks on military targets and critical infrastructure 
across the entire Russian Federation that would be designed to cripple the the, the country uh, and to try and force it into submission. It, it would be, you know, an, an apocalyptic kind of an attack, wave of attacks on on Russia. And within that time frame, then, you know, you have the risk of an escalation, uh, you know, a, an exchange of um, those larger cruise missiles. Now, I do believe that in such a doomsday scenario, and I can't believe we're even having this conversation, but it, it has to be an informed conversation. If the Russians in, in, in that context did fire the large strategic cruise missiles, I do think that most of them would be intercepted and destroyed. Yes. The problem is a lot of them would be destroyed over Europe. And I yes. don't know necessarily what the implications of that would be for the the territory below. Um, I did attend briefings in, in NATO headquarters a number of years ago, and this question came up and the Russian or the, the United States said that the 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 missiles would be inert, you know, that they wouldn't detonate uh, and that they wouldn't achieve the reactions if they were intercepted in mid-flight. But um, the question, though, is, you know, if Putin did order the firing of a tactical nuclear weapon, this small one in the first place, I mean, that really is down to the willingness of the military command to carry out his orders. Um there, there was a precedent during during the Cold War where a, 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 a Soviet army officer was was ordered to fire a nuclear missile in, accidentally, and he refused to do so. So yeah. I don't know that things are much different today. It, it really this is about one man um, and his his ambition, his ego, his vanity. Uh, it but the risk with him is that this could be an Archduke Ferdinand moment that we could unwillingly, uh, inadvertently find ourselves uh, with one nuclear weapon deployed and, and, the, and the imminent risk of a nuclear exchange. Now, he is being criticised by people who are more hardline than he is, and his standing among his own inner circle now, and many of the pundits or military types who appear on Russian television every night he has been criticised for not going hard enough. But is it fair to say, when we look at all the factors, and bearing in mind it'll be seven months this weekend since 24 to February when they went in to Ukraine, expecting to take Kiev in three days to install a puppet regime, this was the promise and this was the plan. When you consider how badly it has worked out. Is he now a liability? Does he have the authority? And is there a way that these people who are on Russian television every night saying, we have to take the gloves off? And Medvedev's, Medvedev's quote, and don't forget, he stood in as president while Putin rigged the constitution so he could come back. Medvedev is a very senior figure. And I'm quoting him directly. All Russian weapons, including strategic nuclear weapons and weapons based on new principles, whatever that is, can be used to protect these fake referendum results at the weekend. So if Donetsk, Luhansk, 
Zaporizhia, where there is the biggest nuclear plant in Europe, is there and has been very close to artillery. Yeah, well, I mean, look, the, the threat is very clear. It, it, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a veiled threat. It's an explicit threat. And Putin's strongest moment in this conflict thus far was back in February when he massed 180,000 troops on the border with Ukraine. And really, that was the moment at which Putin could have, um, by other means, achieved the objectives that he, he has failed to achieve by, by invasion, but just through sheer intimidation, bullying, and, and so on. Now, we're, 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 there's a kind of a reset here. 300,000 troops will arrive in Ukraine, possibly. Um, I don't think they'll get there before winter. Um, and, you know, their capacity to do anything will be limited. But it'll be, it'll be similar to February. You know, he'll have a very large force on the border with de facto what remains of Ukraine, which, and he failed to take, you know, the, the, the east of the country along the, the line of the Dnipro River. So, and he's also threatened to use a tactical nuclear weapon. So this maybe is the last gambit that he can appear to negotiate with Zelensky from an, you know, a perceived position of of strength. It's 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 a kind of a a pathetic scenario, but that my hope would be that that's the thinking and the strategy behind this. Because really, those three hundred thousand troops, even if they get there in the winter, even if they're there springtime, they're not going to be able to meaningfully change the facts on the ground. And millions, millions of Ukrainians have had their lives destroyed and turned upside down by this conflict. Yes. As of the last 24 hours, you now have 300,000 families, even more when you factor in relations across yes. across the Russian Federation that are now intimately involved in this conflict. And the pressure that mothers brought to bear on the Soviets and the and the Kremlin in Afghanistan, in, during the, when, yes. when they had a much greater level of control over the population, that had a very significant impact. So hopefully... The millions of mothers in Russia, it might be a more powerful weapon to bring uh, Putin to heel than any long-range missile system in, 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 in the West. Just a final question, a quick one, Tom. Putin looks a vastly diminished figure. The Chinese have been critical of him. The Indian Prime Minister Modi also saying this is not a time for a war. It is a pariah nation. Now, war crimes have clearly been committed. Our own Taoiseach, Michal Martin, described Russia as a rogue state. He is in a, a pretty bad position. Can you see a way out? No. Uh, on, I, I think that, that's why this is such a, a dangerous moment. Like This is the first yeah. time since World War II that the Russians have, have mobilized their, their reserves and you know possibly... On the, on the point of introducing a wider conscription. It's the first time since World War II. But it is also the first time since 1917 that the Russians have defaulted on their international debts. Yeah. So all of the pressure that has been brought to bear by way of sanctions and on the ground by supplying the Ukrainians with, with intelligence and with firepower have... I think this is Putin's last roll of the dice. I'm sorry to use that phrase again. But it's mm. it's it's you know a classic tactic of of your you know the the 
the hard man, you know, the dictator from central casting in Hollywood. Yeah. He's he's now in his last effort to save face. Um, but no, he can't retire like Mikhail Gorbachev did to a suburb somewhere on the outskirts of Moscow. He can't certainly can't retire to Florida or anywhere else. I don't know where he what country he could flee to. So the stakes are very, very high for him personally. And if you look at his behavior through this conflict and in the in the in the decades leading up to it, he is a man who's prepared to use chemical weapons, use Novichok in the UK. He's prepared to use uh, radioactive materials. Uh, he's he, that that was used polonium uh, was used to kill. Yes. Um, and again in in London. So, you know, future behavior, past behavior rather is is the best indicator of future behavior. I think this is a very very dangerous moment. But you know, there are millions and millions of good people in Russia. And I hope that the pressure is now being brought to bear with the threat of 300,000 in the, in the immediately as we speak being mobilized and, and the, the, the medium term threat of, of global conscription or general conscription in Russia. This, this might um, be the beginning of uh, Putin's unraveling. And these strong men, as we see in the past with people like Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and Nikola Ceausescu, they, they appear impregnable and you know, bullish, but when they unravel, they unravel very, very quickly. And I, I hope that happens before we get to the nightmare scenario of a, of a, of a nuclear attack. Okay, Senator Tom Clonan, security analyst, thank you very much for joining us on the stand. That's all we have time for now. We're grateful to Tom, to all of you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.